The world of agriculture technology is vast and constantly evolving, with new innovations and companies emerging at a rapid pace. At AgTech Media Group, we understand the importance of staying updated and connected in this dynamic industry, and that's why we're thrilled to announce the launch of our new AgTech Company Directory, a comprehensive and user-friendly resource designed to help you navigate the complex landscape of AgTech innovators. More than just a list, it's a curated collection of companies leading the charge in transforming the AgTech sector from startups pioneering new farming methods to established companies adopting cutting-edge technologies. Our directory spans a wide range of leaders dedicated to advancing agriculture through technology. Whether you're a farmer looking for the latest in crop monitoring tools and investors seeking promising ag tech startups or a researcher interested in sustainable farming practices, ag tech directory is designed to cater to your specific needs. You can filter by sector, technology, size, or location to find exactly what you're looking for. To learn more and to claim your company listing, visit agtechcompanies.com. If you are starting a vertical farm and don't know where to begin or which technology would suit your needs, then reach out to the experts at Cultivated. As indoor farm brokers, they help connect you to the right technology and ensure your project is successful. Best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Visit cultivated.com to learn more. And that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com or click the link in the show notes. Said so the best thing that happened to us when we started is that we didn't raise a whole bunch of money. It forced us to be extraordinarily disciplined in what we're doing. We would have made so many mistakes, and I don't even think that were mistakes, we just learned so much, right? In two and a half years time, we cut our labor cost per unit by 75% through mechanization and processes. And I'm not sure that that would have happened much faster, right, with a lot of money in our pocket. Welcome to the Vertical Farming Podcast, weekly conversations with fascinating CEOs, founders, and ad tech visionaries. Join us every week as we dive deep into the world of vertical farming with your host, Harry Duran. Vertical Farming Podcast Season 3, welcome back. If this is your first time listening, you're in the right place. It's the show where we interview fascinating CEOs and founders of the leading vertical farming companies from around the world. I'm your host, Harry Duran. In case you missed last week's episode, great conversation with David Cohen, CEO at Fluence. If you haven't listened to it, please check it out. Very engaging conversation, and David is incredibly smart. And I learned a lot about the history of LEDs and the important role David and his company played at the time. This week, we have the pleasure of speaking with Thomas Oberlin. He's the co-founder of Fazenda Urbana. Based out of Brazil, Fazenda Urbana is the producer of the Mighty Greens brand of vegan microgreens and mushrooms. And in this episode, we discuss the origin story of Fazenda and how Thomas became involved in the controlled environment agriculture scene. And in case you're wondering, we learn how Thomas ended up in Brazil in the first place. He provides his thoughts on the evolution of entrepreneurship there and why that spirit is so prominent in Brazilian culture. And he shares some surprising origin stories, which I know for a fact because I listened to them and thought they were great, that you'll find them educational and entertaining. Finally, Thomas speaks about what excites him in the future of Fazenda Urbana, the Mighty Greens brand, and the ag tech industry as a whole, especially the opportunities in Central and South America. This episode is also brought to you by Indoor AgCon. Whether you're starting up or scaling up, Indoor AgCon can help you grow your vertical farming business live and in person this year. The premier trade show and conference for vertical farming heads to the Hilton Orlando from October 4th through 5th. Explore an expo floor filled with new product resources and business solutions and attend idea-packed sessions led by top CEOs and thought leaders. Connect with your peers and potential business partners at all the networking events. Learn more and take advantage of early bird registration at indoor.ag and you can save an additional $100 off with our promo code VFPOD2021. And we'll make sure that's in the show notes as well. Don't forget to sign up for our Vertical Farming Weekly newsletter at verticalfarmingweekly.com. If you enjoyed this episode or past episodes, leave a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. I'd love to read yours out next. Okay, let's head down south to beautiful Rio de Janeiro and learn more about Thomas and Fazenda Urbana. Thomas Oberlin, co founder at Fazenda Urbana. Thank you for joining me on the Vertical Farming Podcast. It's my pleasure, Harry. I've enjoyed your work for some time, and it's uh, it's great to be a guest. How did you first hear about the show? 
You know, I was looking, I think it was something from the agriculture guys, from Henry. Henry, yeah, Henry, Henry, yeah. he, Henry he Smith. I think yeah. he was guest two or three on the show, yeah, early. Yeah, and so I believe that's how I found out about you. I, I met him once he came to Brazil, and we met for dinner and had a chat a couple of years ago. And um, do you listen to other shows, or is that how you consume the content? Are you Do you normally read audiobooks, or I'm just curious about that? You know, I used to listen to a lot of audiobooks, right? And then I, during the pandemic, I started listening to more and more podcasts. I, I really hadn't done that much attention before, but you now life changed and I had some gaps in my schedule. I started listening and, I, and now it's become a part of my regular routine. And are you at the point where you're listening at a higher speed now, or you're, you're still at your 1x for your podcasts? No, I haven't tried that. That's a good <laughs> Man, I didn't even know that was possible. So I, can, so I can crank up the speed on the podcast and burn through them faster. It's interesting because the technology they use changes the speed, but not the pitch. So it's not like, you know, normally when you play something fast, like an, I think about an old school tape recorder, it the pitch is high. It sounds like chipmunks, but this increases the speed of the podcast. So you can listen to the podcast faster, but it's still me at the same pitch. So it's easier to comprehend and you can do one, 1.2 X, 1.5 X and slowly make your way to higher speeds. And I've done it in the past with audiobooks, And that's when I saw it, that option as podcasts and depending on the content, if it's entertainment or light listening, you can usually get by with starting at one of those 1.1, 1.2 X's, but it lets you just consume content faster. I'm at the point now where I'm at two X, so wow. I can get a 30 minute podcast in 15 minutes. No, that's great. I had no idea. It sounds a little bit like auto-tune technology a long time ago. Was Something a like that. Mus probably. Musician, right? And so, so. And so for the benefit of the listener, where's home for you now? Brazil, Rio de Janeiro is, uh, okay. is where, where we're based, so. I've been three times. Really? <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, how did that happen? I know you're supposed to be interviewing me, but tell me a little no, bit. No, it's okay. It's a conversation, not an interview, so it's fine. <laughs> uh, yeah, I ended up there with friends uh, in the late 90s. Went to Rio, went there once with a group of friends. Then we went back, I think it was a year or two later, and then went there for another trip when I was in, in Sao Paulo. But yeah, I really love it. I actually got to go to Sambodromo which again for the benefit of the listener is uh actually maybe you, you if you want to describe it that'd be interesting no it's sort of it's a long narrow type of football stadium in a sense right through which you know the carnival of a parade occurs in rio so it's an amazing experience and in fact my co-founder rodrigo meyer used to you know when we first met his part-time job was helping helping a company that arranged for tourists to have that experience during Carnival. It's an amazing sensory experience there. Yeah, it's almost the only thing I can think of as an equivalent is sort of like the Rose Bowl parade, but like also, but it's, it was almost like a strip that you would see like uh, one of the speed car races in as well. <laughs> so it's a weird combination. Yeah, and it's, but it's one just after another. And floats yeah. and schools. Yeah, that's right. The school has the schools of marchers or participants and from my understanding they, i mean they and what i've seen it they spend like a year on the costumes the floats and it's it's a real that's your point a sensory experience is really really interesting to to have seen that yeah they go through a whole fundraising process right and then they build these incredible and elaborate floats sometimes the floats make it all the way through the summer drone sometimes they're a little too large to turn a corner, and oh, that's funny. and then sometimes people fall off. So you have all this sort of NASCAR, you know, crash-like aspect to it, in addition <laughs> to, you know, the the sound, the drumming, and the the music, and the dancing, and the costumes. So that's it. Yeah, it's, it's intense, so, and and I, and that was me there for for Carnival as well. So experiencing that in Rio is an experience in and of itself as well. Yeah. When did you end up in Rio? So my first experience in Brazil started in the year 2000. I was in a, an executive in a company that built uh, large data centers, carrier neutral data centers here in, in Brazil and in Argentina. And so 
you know, the first time I did any sort of work in South America in general was during that time frame from 2000 to 2003. And, uh, and we had a big data center, Sao Paulo, and another one in Rio. And I started out running business development and then sales for in all the countries. And so I had to spend two weeks a month in Brazil. And so what I would do is I would go to Sao Paulo, the largest city in the Southern Hemisphere, for anybody who doesn't know, over 20 million people in the metropolitan area. And I would go Monday through Thursday in Sao Paulo. And then I would fly Thursday night to Rio and I would stay Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday in Rio. And then I'd go back to Sao Paulo and then on to Buenos Mm -hmm. Aires. So that, and then, um, so I really fell in love with the country and the people. And uh, and then in 2009, I I launched a modular data center company, put together a team of engineers. We got a patent on this highly energy efficient a modular data center system ultimately went on and got uh, and were approved and selected by uh, Amazon as the only Latin American company that they certified to provide to provide modular data centers to them, and decided to launch that that production of that business in Brazil and and I had, and specifically in Rio at that time. So from that point on, you know, I my life's been really focused on Brazil. And then when did controlled environment, agriculture, vertical farming, when did that appear on your radar when you start noticing that? You know, I started really paying attention to it in 2015 at the the modular data center company, which is called SmartCube. We happened to win and deliver two huge projects, award-winning projects for two different banks in, in Venezuela, of all places. Very challenging environment. Yeah, to to work in, but the the banks were you know two uh, government owned banks, and the first project with the Bank of Venezuela, uh, we became very close friends with the VP of IT. Eventually, he left the bank and uh, started working with us. And because he left the bank, he no longer had access to some uh, preferential treatment that government employees got with respect to access to food, and they were going through a, a really difficult uh, time. People were standing in food lines, uh, people standing in lines for medicine. And so he was, and his former boss had become the minister of, of groceries, in effect, Alimentos. Uh-huh. So, you know, we kept th- thinking, boy, what can we do? You know, what can we, what can we do to help these guys? And uh, and started looking around and uh you know, that's really where I started seeing the controlled environment. First, I saw the modular container guys, right, like freight farms and Grotainer, right? I saw what the agricool guys were doing over in France, as well as some of the, you know, the larger skill. But our idea that motivated us to even really start looking at that was, you know, we had a friend, couldn't get food. And so that's what drove us down this path. Once we started studying it, you know, we, you know, my co-founder Rodrigo was the right-hand guy. And in effect, we worked closely together at, at SmartCube and said, well, let's, we think there's something interesting here. And so we, we left uh, SmartCube and started, uh, you know, spent a year studying the market and deciding what we wanted to do in the controlled environment space. That's an interesting story. Thanks for sharing that background. And I'm sure anyone who follows the news understands the situation that's happening in Venezuela, but also just across South America. There's a lot of inability to have access to fresh produce. And we see it here, obviously, in the United States with our food deserts. But I think people assume that in South America that access to fresh produce is mm-hmm. is common. And I think you being there and seeing it firsthand, you, you've probably been, to ex- been able to experience how that's usually not the case. And was that really a surprising find for you or... Is it something you became more aware of as you did more research? No, it was in the sense that a country that, in the case of Venezuela, a country that was, you know, not that long ago had been extraordinarily wealthy and had a robust, uh, you know, agricultural system had completely collapsed. I mean, I have pictures that, pictures sent up, literally the guys stand in line for five hours and almost nothing on the shelves. But even within Brazil, as we started to look at it, Brazil's the 220-some million people, the longest from north to south you know, country in the world. 
Yet its federal highway system, when we started looking at this, was only about had only about 55, 56% paved roads. And so what you have in Brazil, these centers where there's a lot of food production, of course, there's massive amounts of soybean production and beef and big drivers for the export economy, but green leafy vegetables and fruits, there are centers at which that product is produced. And not always, not always, close to all the population centers. And so transportation expenses are high. Transportation quality is leaves some things to be desired. And, uh, and so you can have a product that costs four reais per kilo in one part of the country at the supermarket and will sell for 30 or 40 reais a kilo in another part of the country. Simply be, so it's in effect you know, a food desert uh, simply because of these transportation logistics issues and costs. So you said you did a, spent about a year doing research. What was it that you were finding that was coloring like you know your decision into what type of company Fazenda was going to be? Yeah, they, we went and looked at several different things, right? Coming from SmartCube, that was a custom design manufacturing company. We would build these modular data centers with, centers with uh, intelligent cooling systems. That we were one of three companies in the world at the time to get a patent on technology in that area. And so you know, we're used to this manufacturing world. And, and we didn't really like it because, you know, you spend a lot of money doing custom development. You, somebody may decide to buy or not. not. We're very... Uh, we at one point had had people inquiring from over 120 different countries around the world about modular data centers. We knew we we'd already looked fairly early on and said, yeah, we, I don't think we want to be in the manufacturing, you know, the container farm business as well. So freight farms was out there with some guys doing some interesting work in that sector, but a container farm that would sell for eighty or hundred thousand dollars. Well, we were selling modular data centers there, you know, the cheap unit was $500,000 into a million. Oh, wow. So you got to sell a lot of container farms and or services associated with it to, to make up for that. So we fairly early on decided, okay, we don't want to be in that. There was a lot of interest in franchise businesses here in Brazil in particular. And we thought, we looked at that and said, look, we don't know whether this is going to work, how it's going to work, what's going to work. You know, we don't want to start offering some franchise of a solution. And the real is Rodrigo, I grew up on a farm, right? Rodrigo's a vegetarian, but beyond that, we didn't have any touch with agriculture. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we went and got teamed up with a PhD agronomer who a, was a professor at a local university. We started, and then we spent a lot of time in supermarkets and looking at the things that we knew could be grown in controlled environments at the time and figuring out, okay, in the major cities in Brazil, Brazil's a... Over 80% of the population lives in urban areas, despite the immense size of the country. In these cities, what is there an excess of supply of, right? And what is in fault and what are the price points? And over time, we found is that, you know, uh, small, you know, especially, you know, vegetables, specifically microgreens, right? Baby leaf and microgreens in particular, had the highest value per unit. And there was nobody producing those products on any sort of scalable way and nobody doing it in a controlled environment at all. And so despite the fact that we won and we were selected to provide some container farms to a project in the Ilha de Madeira in Portugal, before we'd even started the business, we submitted a design and were selected. We said, nah, you know what? We want to be producers, right? We want to produce pesticide-free products. We want to produce them close to the consumer, eliminating this transportation, food loss issues. And so we decided to launch and do our MVP focused on microgreens. One other thing stimulated that. You know, Rodrigo and I both at that time had stepsons that were about seven years of age. Neither one of them liked to eat vegetables. (laughs) And what we found testing growing microgreens at home is that in both cases, you could put you know, 200 grams of regular block broccoli on the plate, or you could put a small amount of microgreens who have substantially higher nutritional density per kilo, and they would eat the, the microgreens. When they would fight 
in some cases, for hours against eating the regular plant. Interesting. And so that reinforced that we thought, okay, there's an interesting opportunity here. And, and there's some other benefits to the microgreen approach. And what was the initial response as you started rolling out? And how did you decide that this pilot or this experiment was enough for you to justify moving forward? Good, great question. There were a couple of interesting things. Uh, we had gotten some data, you know, uh, suggesting that you know reasonable expectation at that time to produce microgreens was to do it within a 14-day period and that we should be able to produce about one and a half kilos of microgreens per square meter of growth space. And I'll tell you, at that point in time, we spent months trying to find a seed company that would provide us with seeds that didn't have any sort of treatment on them, any defensivos that they said here, right? We didn't know what to do for it. We had to test all sorts of different grow media options. We didn't want to use soil inside of a controlled environment, right? Test grow different media options. And we had to find lighting solutions. So we said, well, we're going to do this in the lowest risk way possible. We leased two small, uh, like, you know, half of a 20-foot container. One, in fact, to start out, we bought racks at the equivalent of a Home Depot and trays at a, constri- at a home improvement place, bought pumps at a pet fish supply <laughs> store. <laughs> and then we went and looked at LED lights. And at that time, you know, they were going to cost us like 4,000 reais, which was a couple thousand dollars here by the time they were imported grow lights per unit. So, well, that, that doesn't make any sense. So we selected, uh, you know, fluorescent lights on the blue end of the spectrum. And we built this real simple system out and then started growing. And the first time we got the, you know, the, the production time was, it was 12 days instead of 14. Depending on the plant that we had planted, we were able to produce between, we were supposed to do, have, produce about 1.5 kilos per square meter. We, went, we were between 2.5 and 3.4 kilos per square meter. And uh, so, well, okay, that probably was a mistake, right? We went back and did it again. We were able to cut the time further. Then we started breaking the production process into two sectors, germination, right, and then, and then growth, and obviously reduced our energy costs by doing that, and then started applying some other techniques used in marijuana production and so forth until we reached a point where almost all of our microgreens products were able to produce consistently within a seven-day time frame. Then we started taking products out to restaurants, and visiting them. And we would cut the product, we'd weigh it, put it in you know, 50 grams per box, which was, which was a pretty standard configuration that I'd seen. And, and uh, one of the chefs, who's one of the top top 50 chefs in Latin America, you know, said, hey, Tom, you know, my, I worked in the U.S. and I worked in Europe, and I could get live microgreens there. If you bring me live microgreens, they'll last in the kitchen a lot longer. And, uh, you know, so it's a far better value proposition for me than buying these organic grown in the dirt microgreens that I have to wash. They already are turning into a green juice by the time they're, they're in the kitchen for a day. And just a point of clarification there, when you say live, yeah. is there a distinction there? Yeah, so all what we, just, we sell our products, we don't cut our microgreens, right? So we sell living my and we sell living microgreens. We planted so over time we standardized on coconut fiber initially as a grow medium, but we had to go to the coconut fiber provider and get them to give us a consistent thickness of carpet that didn't exist. So when we were getting seeds, we were getting developed a consistent thickness of, of uh, carpet. Then we had, went through a whole process of cutting the carpet into certain sizes that would fit into our boxes, sterilizing the carpet. Planting it, we developed the machinery to plant it to cut our labor costs down, and then we developed a you know a germination system, a fog ponics based germination system with controls that allowed it to adjust it for plant. And so we plant the plants, germinate them in one environment, and migrate to another environment for three and a half days of growth under the lights. Put that 
coconut fiber with the microgreens on them in a box and sell them. And we developed packaging that allowed uh, they maintained those plants in uh, a live state, whether they were on a supermarket shelf. And so, so when I say live, yeah. So as opposed, yeah. <laughs> to, as opposed, so anybody yeah. else that you would organic farmers would because they're growing in soil, right? Would cut the plant. And, and microgreens are very sensitive. So they, they have a very short shelf life if you do that. So by developing packaging that maintained this plant in a little, like a little terrarium almost, we were able to keep the product on the, we had, we had restaurants that would put it in, in Tupperware and keep it in their refrigerated section and it would be good for three weeks to four weeks. Wow. And what was the response from the chef? No, oh, he loved it. He told everybody. And so we started out with the idea that we're going to sell two supermarkets. We wanted something that was scalable, right? And we could replicate in multiple cities and it was scalable. But the working with the chefs allowed us to test all these processes so that when the supermarket business came along, we were ready to go for it. I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to the previous interviews with uh, Rob Lang of Farm One. He had a, a similar story of how he started with... Uh, reaching out to Michelin star chefs in New York City and because he was working with like edible flowers and then obviously there's Herbs. a proliferation of high-end restaurants in New York City. So he made a lot of headway there. And uh, the recent one with um, Hiroki Kogi from Oishi about taking this crazy story, but flying over with uh, strawberries in his suitcase and then um, these omakase, like high-end strawberries, and then take walking them to restaurants in New York City as well. So I thought uh, it's fascinating because if anyone has a refined palate enough to be able to appreciate the nuances and the flavors that are inherent with, you know, edibles grown like this, I think it's definitely uh, chefs to start. So that's what we did, all a similar thing, right? We produced our product. So the, the, going back to the chef, you know, we produced the product and we took it to him on a Friday. It was the Friday of the start of Carnival. He said, ah, oh, Tom, we're going to be closed for another week. I said, wow. fantastic, right? At that time with restaurants, we were take, we're deliver, we decided we we're going to deliver and do a full reverse logistics approach. So we would deliver a Tupperware box with the product in it. They could put it directly in, in their refrigerated area. That's what he did. And then when they came back, in fact, it was like 10 days later, they called and said, hey, you know, we just pulled your product out of the, the camera fria, right, of the cold storage. It looks just like when you delivered here and we're using it today. Wow. And so, yeah, and then he spread the word. But Rodrigo and I would walk around on the streets in Rio in the areas where the restaurants were concentrated. And I would walk with microgreens in a box to the, the restaurants we wanted to go to. And I would walk in speaking my bad Portuguese, right? And, and the Brazilian people are very friendly and, and particularly with foreigners, very welcoming people. And so people would talk to me and then the, and the chefs would come out and talk. And then when the chef would come out, then Rodrigo was there to explain in greater detail, right? What it was we're doing and how we're doing it. And so we, our restaurant business, you know, grew literally by going door to door in the start. And then it combined with word of mouth from one well-known chef and then another well-known chef, actually. So that's a fascinating origin story. And I always like asking because <laughs> sometimes some of the best stories come out of you doing what is required in those early days. That door to door uh, stuff is, is really important. I'm always reminded of the an interview I heard with the Airbnb founders about doing the things that don't scale and how they would fly to New York and knock on people's doors and say, hey, we've shown that apartments with photos get better results. So would you mind if we took some photos of, of your apartment? And they were doing this. This is the founders of, of Airbnb. But it's interesting, you know, that entrepreneurial spirit is really strong when you've got to really do what you can to, to really make your idea work. I just remembered one other thing we did before we even grew any microgreens and we, we didn't have a production system. Somehow I got a meeting with a, a mid-level restaurant chain. I forget. Oh, no, I know how I did it because I I, remember, I thought, well, this company could be an interesting client. And I walked in, and Rodrigo and I went, walked into their corporate offices. And it was the same thing. Here's some gringo speaking strange Portuguese. And then the guy who was responsible for food decisions came out and he said, oh, you know, this sounds interesting. Can you bring me some samples? And I'll set up a meeting with our head chef. 
we didn't have anything. So, but I found there was a, you know, at farmer's market, right, there's a, a organic producer selling cut microgreens. And so I went and bought some, you know, I, I just repackaged and put them in another plat clamshell. <laughs> <laughs> I took it. We took. I took it to the meeting with the chef. That's funny. <laughs> and so they said, "Yeah, I want this. I will figure out what dishes. Can you bring me some more different kinds?" <laughs> and I was stimulated to do that because I remember that the founder of Net Shoes talked about when he was just getting going. He didn't have any product at all. He would he'd go to shoe stores, you know, athletic shoe stores, take offer to. They'd let him take photos of the shoes that he, when he sold the shoes, he would buy the shoes there that he was selling online in the discount. Wow. Yeah, it's that hustle mentality. Do you find that the entrepreneurial spirit is, or the movement is growing or awareness of entrepreneurs? I, I know obviously it's super strong here and in the States. I'm always curious, you know, how or what the environment is like for entrepreneurs in places like Brazil. I think it's very strong here. I think Brazilians always have this uh, spirit of, you know, figuring out a way to do something, a jetinho, they call it. And so they will sell anything, right, to anybody. And they're pretty innovative. And they're in a market that's big, right? 200 and some million people. So you, if you do something and do it well. And so we see a lot of that. We are, I, literally a week hasn't gone by since we started promoting what we're doing, that we're not contacted by somebody here in Brazil who wants to learn how to start a microgreens business. Every week. If it's one a week, it's a slow week. And so but you see this. And the other thing I see here is increasing support for early stage businesses. So where 15 years ago, 10 years ago, there weren't, weren't angel investment groups Right or there and there wasn't the there weren't venture capitalists focused on agrotech or tech or any any business you know the this whole you know there have been local entrepreneurs that have had successful exit events that have now that understand the venture capital world that are now helping to build that that ecosystem here and so I would say in Brazil in particular there is a strong culture of of entrepreneurship is the interest and the influx of money that you see in the U.S., you know, Bowery raising $300 million just most recently, do you see that having an impact on what you're planning there in Brazil? And is some of that making its way there as well? Yeah, I do see it having an impact here in that it gives, Brazilians are generally cautious investors. They are, the country had a history of hyperinflation and you know, another, a number of other challenges. And so they're, they tend to be cautious investors, but they're also followers of things that happen in the U.S. and Europe. And I would say even more so the U.S. than in Europe. And so when they see multiple controlled environment agricultural companies in the U.S. receiving substantial investor support, those people who are looking for new investment opportunities view that as a positive sign. In terms of money from the U.S. coming here, I think, you know, we'll start to see some of that. And I think I'll give you my observation on the data center side in, in that companies in the U.S. tend to look towards Europe first and then Asia second. And then after that, when they're looking for, for growth opportunities, they'll look at South America. And, you know, I think you'll see more and more attention paid, and particularly as more controlled environment agriculture companies come online here and start expanding. So, yeah, I think it's a positive. At the same time, you have to build a business to last, right? And so, yeah. and that's the conservative part of the Brazil side. I think it's good. We, you know, I think too, we, we're, my co-founder and I, Rodrigo, and I always said the best thing that happened to us when we started is that we didn't raise a whole bunch of money. It forced us to be extraordinarily disciplined in what we're doing. We would have made so many mistakes. And any of the things that were mistakes, we just learned so much. Right? In two and a half years' time, we cut our labor cost per unit by 75% through mechanization and processes. And I'm not sure that that would have happened much faster right, with a lot of money in our pocket. So, you know, I've seen, you know, I think that we'll see U.S. investors come here. I think we'll see international companies looking to grow that will look to pick up, you know, somebody that's established in Brazil and add them to their portfolio as well. 
mentioned this idea of looking at franchises as well. I'm wondering with the interest in microgreens, if the thought ever crossed your mind of taking all the learnings you had and you discovered and creating a model around that where people, rather than start their own microgreens company, could leverage the work that you've done so far. You ask great questions, Harry. Well, we considered, the answer is yes, right? We look at Brazil and you sort of stratify the country based on this, the size of the urban population and the, the GDP per capita within the, these cities. And there are some cities where it makes sense for us to own and be owners and operators and others where there's a you know potential market there, but it may not be sufficiently large to be of great interest to us. And so one of the things that we've considered is, and we've in fact had some discussions, including one recently with the group about a sort of, I would say a co-ownership model, right? Where we provide the technology and know-how and processes and all of that uh, with a local operator who's got skin in the game as well. And so that's a, an approach that, that we're studying studying actively with some entrepreneurs who are interested in that kind of partnership. Will it go anywhere? I don't know. It's been interesting to see in companies like uh, Henry's Agritecture, you know, they provide that the consulting, the feedback guidance. Our title sponsor this season is Cultivated, which is doing something similar here in the States. And they actually figure out like what your needs are and then figure out what the appropriate solution is for you and then marry the two. And as the farmer, they don't charge the farmer, they just, they work with their partners and that's how they get compensated. So it's, it's actually free to work with them, which I think is a, is a great model. Yeah, that's an interesting model. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting model. So fast forward to present day and is the company, because I noticed you're also using the Mighty Greens brand. So yeah. are, what's the relationship between both the, between Fazenda and Mighty Greens? So Fazenda Urbana is the corporate name, right? And Mighty Greens is our, the brand that we use. Right. That's the brand we established in Brazil. And so what's the mix look like? Because uh, you did mention you did start with microgreens. And I'm just curious now for present day and for the benefit of the listener, what's the model look like and the offerings? So today we are we're best known for microgreens, but we also are offering uh, mushrooms. And so we're growing uh, mushrooms and we've got a couple of the products on our route. But those two products, we started... We started offering mushrooms in 2000 and in April of 2019. In fact, we started mushrooms were always on our product roadmap. If you look at the lean startup canvas that we wrote in 2016, we're basically still following 90% of what's on there. And we had developed a strong relationship with a large supermarket chain in Rio called Zona Sul. And they were launching a new mega store with an on-site with chickens on site producing eggs banana trees in the parking lot you know a cheese making small cheese making factory inside the store pizzeria you know a french pastry chef producing pastries and gelato and, and like, a mar- a co- like a live market experience <laughs> yeah a coffee roaster right right in the store for central wow. must smell amazing when you walk in oh, there yeah one, but yeah, but aside at one point, the administrative person responsible said, "Why you? Did you guys know how much money you're spending on coffee at that, <laughs> that store? You know, two or three espressos every day." Yeah, a, but anyhow, we started selling that store because the directors, the president's wife, met us at a at a farmers market early on. Loved what we we're doing, and the next time she saw that we were at the farmers market, she told her husband to go there and check this out. And the day after, he had his head head of buying of fruits and vegetables, calling us to put the product in the store. And so we had already forged a good relationship with him. We started selling microgreens when nobody knew what they were. We did tastings in the store, and then we turned microgreens into a product that you could put on the shelf, and they would go out the door even without tasting. Uh-huh. So he called us in and said, "Look, we're launching this new store." in Baja de Tijuca, in the kind of the, the Miami Beach suburbs of Rio. And we'd like you guys to grow that grass that you grow <laughs> here at the store. And then we explained to him, look, look, this really requires precision and controlled environment, and there's space you need to plant and harvest and all this. And Rodrigo said to him, what about mushrooms? Ah, even better, he says. And um, when Rodrigo suggested mushrooms, had he consulted with you prior? To that, to that? 
No, they, I walked in. I was meeting we're in the same building with a distributor. And I walked in. Yeah. And he said, hey, you got some great news. These guys want us to grow at the store. And I'm like, no. Eh. And he said, he said, the bad news is I mean, we've agreed to grow mushrooms there. I said, we hadn't grown a mushroom in our life, at least in, not intentionally, right? But interestingly enough, through one of our investors, an attorney, six months earlier, he put me in touch with a, a fellow who was the largest producer of mushroom grow media, blocks of mushrooms for, for exotic mushrooms, right? Shiitake, shimeji, in Brazil, based out of Sao Paulo. He's a Japanese guy, grew up in South Carolina, went to University of Columbia, and then his family had uh, big cotton mills, and uh, cotton mills, but produced, uh, had big factories that produced a lot of cloth. So he was called to Brazil to take over the family cotton production business. He said, well, at least I'm going to do something I like, which is also produce mushrooms. And so I'd become friends with him. We got to know him. And so when we were asked to do this. They basically said, you know, the supermarket zone still said, there's just going to be the space in front of the store, between the store and this, and the main road in Baja Tijuca. We're going to build a concrete base and we want you to put a container there, 20 foot container. And so we had a contact with the supplier, a guy who produced uh, inoculated blocks. And so I talked to him about it. We had an idea. We'd already been thinking about producing mushrooms in the following year. And so we set about, in about six weeks' time, we had to do this. We had to find a container. We had to build out the, the grow space. And it was not only supposed to be a grow room, but a space that consumers could visit. Yeah, I was thinking about that. It has to be something that's customer-facing and looks good, too. <laughs> yeah. So, and the first problem was finding a 20-foot refrigerated container. And at the time, the 20-foot reefer containers were, were, are generally more scarce. And we were looking everywhere. We couldn't, the ones we found were way out of our budget. And our farm was set up, uh, and at that point, the phase we're in, we were set up in a, in a place co-located with a guy who did container reformation in another part of the space. And one evening, as the sun was going down, it was like walking around in a back area that he had, just stressed, thinking, how are we going to get this thing done? The only thing we could find was three or four times the budget we had for it. And look, and there's this box covered with vines. I mean, literally, like the jungle was growing over this. And I looked at it again, I looked at the size of it, and I went and knocked on it. <laughs> and then I said, Rodrigo, I think this is a reefer container, 20 foot. He said, no, man. Where was this? This was in a rural area. It was in Rio, right? But in the area called Ila de Guarachiba. And, the, and so this was like a, a place. It was like a graveyard of old containers this guy had. I mean, literally, a Cadillac graveyard. This was like a container graveyard. And then I grabbed the door and pulled it open, ripped the vines off of it, pulled the door open. And it was in perfect condition on the inside. And it had been abandoned there. And so we were able to buy that container for a third the price that other people were asking. It was a 40-year-old container made in Japan. It was solid as a rock. And it was refrigerated? or you and, it was, and, it was, had the, and, and it had insulation. It was a reefer oh. container. So okay. the refrigeration units don't work well for what we wanted. But the thermal insulation for Rio, where it gets 40 degrees centigrade, right? it gets over 100 degrees sometime, when you have to grow mushrooms at 17 degrees centigrade, is an important attribute. So we bought that container. We reformed it in, in, then in a matter of a couple weeks' time, painted it, put in something that looks like an aquarium, right, uh, you know, with, with sliding doors that, and built racks that we put inside of it took the, the fogging-type systems we do for germination and put it inside to hydrate the mushrooms, put lighting inside of it, put glass doors on it, and dropped it, finished it and dropped it in place in, right in front of that supermarket. A day later, put mushroom blocks in there, and a week later, we were selling oyster mushrooms in the supermarket by taking the fruited blocks from that container into the supermarket and placing them on a table and letting people harvest their own mushrooms. Wow, that's a great story. <laughs> what was the response? Oh, was it, well, a lot of crazy news about it, different things. One, yeah, if you put the yellow, the citrino, and the salmon-colored oyster mushrooms out there, they attract people like crazy. 
They're right? beautiful, yeah. We have people that want to buy the whole block and take it home like a bunch of flowers. Right? So we had to teach people how to harvest the mushroom off the block. And, the, and Brazil's home to a, it has a fairly sizable vegetarian population, right? It's approaching 30 million people. There's a rapidly growing vegan population as well. Those lifestyles and dietary uh, approaches are largely concentrated in, I would say, 35 and younger, 40 and younger in particular. And so what you have often is multi-generation homes here. And so you'd have parents come in and say, hey, you know, my kid's uh, vegan or vegetarian tells me to buy mushrooms and I don't know what the heck to do with it. And so we learned that we had to educate the consumer on how to cook the mushrooms, how to prepare the mushrooms, different dishes they could prepare. Yeah. And we did that. We started working closely with the store. In fact, today, you know, Rodrigo is, you know, just being uh, interviewed. I would say he also, he was being filmed in a video by that supermarket chain that they run inside the store. One more video that run inside the store to talk about what we do there. A big media day for Fazenda today. Yeah, yeah it is. It is. <laughs> Yeah, two continents, in fact, right? And the other thing is that we started getting school groups coming in. In the microgreen side of the business, we had very early on, because of our experience with children, been working with a nutritionist who was famous for teaching parents how to deal with kids who didn't eat properly. And so we would conduct events with her, Gabriella Capine, and we would teach kids how to plant microgreens. We would take the seeds from arugula, which and treat it with hydrogen peroxide and then wash water, take little coconut fiber. The kids would smear the seeds on the coconut fiber. They put it in one of our packages. They'd take it home. And seven days later, they'd have microgreens. Kids love the experience. They love that stuff, yeah. yeah. Experimenting. And then they would eat it, right? Yet there was the other thing. we thought. There was a group of kids, 20 or 30 kids, and the parents would be standing around and say, oh, she doesn't eat the green stuff. He doesn't like that. And the parents would leave, and then you put the plants out, the migraines out, the plants out, the kids, and they'd all start eating. One would start eating, and then they all start eating. They all start eating, right? And so, and we'd tell them this is a salada, the crayons, they could sell it. Well, when we put the mushroom container in place, we started having school groups coming in and doing tours and explaining to them. And we do the same thing. We prepare mushrooms for those kids in the school groups to eat. And every school group had at least one kid. And you ask them, what do you know about mushrooms? And the one kid with there, probably somebody like me when I was that age, shout out, they're poisonous. They're poisonous. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> but then they'd start eating it and then everybody would eat it. So we learned a lot by doing that, right? And for the store, you know, this supermarket chain is, you know, their parking lot, the shade in the parking lot are solar panels, right? So you park under the massive solar panel array, right? They have heavily focused on sustainable food and sustainable products. So having a zero mile, you know, from the standpoint of distance from the farmer to the store product was something that was appealing to them. Once we started doing that, they asked us to supply other mushrooms in our mushroom business. They, and then we started doing these events in stores, teaching people how to cook mushrooms, how to use them, training them about nutritional value. We're able to increase the mushroom business in terms of bulk mushrooms, harvested mushrooms or ready to harvest mushrooms by 10 times over the course of about six months period. Wow. So we found Is a that lot line of mighty mushrooms now? Yeah. Yeah. You know, another interesting thing, from the start, we had said, we're going to have mighty greens, mighty mushrooms, mighty berries, right? But we've just stuck with the I think at some point that will happen. We'll just go with mighty and then it'll have yeah. mushrooms, berries, and greens. But today we just we still use one unique logo. But that, What was the take from the, uh, the, the Japanese farmer? I'm wondering what his reaction was to see how, you know, input from him turned into something like this. No, he always told me, the guy's name is Seiji, and we talk regularly he kept telling me tom he said you're going to start growing mushrooms and that's going to dwarf your microgreen business and we and i said you know look i believe we can create microgreens as the the gateway vegetable right for kids and in fact we've seen that start to happen but we then turned around after he saw the activities that were going on with the container we turned around and helped him build a, a 40-foot container that he was producing shiitake mushrooms in 
with the idea that he was thinking about doing a franchising of that sort of business. I think okay. that's that's on hold now, but it's been a very good relationship. I would say that we we, we sort of help each other out in that way. But uh, you know, the mushroom business also led us uh, down a, another path that we've reached a point during the pandemic when there was a you know, breakdown for a while in the supply chain, right? In terms of getting uh, mushrooms, grow media, and we weren't producing our own. And we couldn't produce mushrooms. Uh, that was a problem. And so I went into the, that store that I described with its coffee roasting business and coffee bar. I, we took the cardboard, excess cardboard that they have in the store. We took coffee grounds from the used coffee grounds from the store. And it took ashes from the pizza oven. Used the ashes to sterilize the, we put the cardboard in water, sterilize it basically with, with ashes, raise the pH high enough in the water that it killed anything that was on the cardboard. We then mixed the cardboard with uh, coffee grounds and then we planted, put oyster, uh, mushroom seeds in this mixture, put it all inside of buckets that were had been used to uh, deliver olives in bulk or butter to the bakery downstairs. And then we started producing mushrooms at the store made of items that were thrown away from in the store. Wow. Who's came, who came up with that idea? Or how to <laughs> you know, I think I had, there were several different factors that stimulate that. I remember watching some YouTube videos, you know, the, the better, best university, right? The, between podcasts and YouTube. Sure. I'm not sure you, do, you need to go to school much for anything. Uh, some guys, uh, I want to think it was in Amsterdam, peddling around Amsterdam, gathering up coffee grounds from coffee bars and starting to grow mushrooms on them. And I remember that from a couple of years ago. And then there's a, you know, an agronomer that worked with us that had mentioned, hey, you know, you can fruit mushrooms on cardboard and do these different things. And so, the people, you know, I'd, I'd done some research about it. But at that point, I was desperate. I needed to grow mushrooms, right? And so I said, well, I, you know, like everything else in life, I've never done this before, but I'll, you know, I think we can figure it out. And so necessity is the mother of invention. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, so and so we started doing that, testing it, then yeah. it worked. Then our, then our supplier came back online. Right now, you know, Harry, we're in a conversations with that supermarket chain about actually scaling that idea up. And seeing if, if we can provide that as a service to them. They have over 40 stores in Rio. And they have a you know, central deposit. And so the idea, if it makes sense, I mean, beyond the emotional part of it, right? And the, the sustainable benefits, if it makes sense, and I think it will, the idea will provide this as a service to the supermarket chain where they deliver these discarded materials to us and we turn them into mushrooms that they then sell at their stores. All from that visit of his uh, wife to the farmer's market. <laughs> yeah, yes. All from that. Yeah. Those are some fascinating stories. And I, I think what I love about this format is that I just follow my own interest and, and my train of thought. And as I'm hearing you talk about this, I feel like, you know, some of these stories are really great because it's really tells you you do what you need to do in, the, in those early days to figure out what works. And because you are in a place where, you know, controlled environment agriculture, all these, you know, microgreens, mushrooms, this is early days, still new stuff, and people are discovering it at the same time you're deciding how you can manufacture and scale it. I think uh, it's it's like anything goes. And it's almost like the early days of the, of the gold rush here or the Wild West where, you know, that innovator spirit, that entrepreneurial spirit, I think, you know, you do what you need to do to get things done. And as a result, if you're in the right place, right time, good things can happen. You know, yeah, we, we, as I mentioned, we have people contacting us all the time and uh, particularly my uh, microgreens. And Eventually, they get down to you know, try to ask, you know, where did you buy your seeds and where did you get to grow media? And those are two things that we share with everybody because we figure that more people growing microgreens means more people and more consumers are wearing microgreens. And when we arrive in their city with a, a super efficient and high quality product, efficient produced high quality product, there's going to be a prepared market for microgreens. When there wasn't, there wasn't when we started. And so... The, um, but we keep explaining to people that, look, just, I mean, we selected this grow media. We selected these whole things because we, it fit into a, a complex process that we developed over time. 
Um, and so just buying those two things and think you're going to do it in one way. In your with, basement. <laughs> yeah, without thinking. It, it might work, right? It might work. But what you really need to do is go test all this stuff because you might find a better way to do it than we've thought of. Just imitating what we're doing, okay, you can do some things. And in fact, we've reached a point where we abandoned, we stopped using the coconut fiber grow media and migrated to an algae-based grow media because it cut so many steps in the process and increased our shelf life. And we eliminated all the hydroponics in the part of the production of microgreens that uh, use light. Interesting. So we plant the seeds on this gel that's 99.7% water, right? But that's, and the only other time it, it comes in and it counters water is in the germination process where our phlogponic system, you know, helps hydrate the seeds. Once the roots start to grow and they move into the, under the lighting, we had built this complex, intelligent, you know, automated ebb and flow type of hydroponic system and we ripped it all out because we don't need to use it anymore wow and so when you and when you say fog ponics that's similar to what we would consider aeroponics similar uh, yeah similar okay. is there a difference you know yeah the way that we use it's slightly different right so if you think of aero farms and some of the people using aeroponics high pressure right aeroponic systems they're spraying very fine drops at the mist, roots yeah. right a mist at the plants one of the things we do a lot is read as much of the published research that we can find, right? And there's a lot of great information out there that people aren't applying, right? And so one of the things that we discovered is that if the droplet of the water is below a certain size, then it penetrates the seed much more efficiently, hydrates the endosperm of the seed faster, and you get faster germination and higher germination rates. And so our phlogponics is designed for that purpose. What now, once that seed germinates, the roots are growing in this gel. There's no more aeroponics, phlogponics, any other type of ponics. But ours is focused on the seed and hydrating the seed as opposed to the roots. The, uh, as opposed to delivering water and for baby leaf and so forth, um, you know, fertilizer into the roots. Lots of uh, innovation happening there, and, and I, I think it's just experimenting, trying new ways. And I think, I think coming from your background, I think you're open to trying new ways of doing things. And I'm wondering if you're seeing opportunities to grow not just within Brazil but also in in South America. I'm wondering if you're tracking what's happening in other countries when it comes to vertical farming. Yeah, I think a couple of things we're doing can work almost anywhere, right? And so, if you're including in the U.S. and so, and looking around South America. You know, prior to, you know, setting up here in Brazil, I spent two years where I would work, I would stay six months a year in Buenos Aires. So Argentina, well, one of my friends from there is the, is the CFO of a large supermarket chain there. So, so I talked to him regularly about the potential in that market. Uh, two other, three other people that I've worked closely with are from Chile. Two of them live in Chile. I think Chile's an interesting market. I think Colombia is an interesting market as well. Argentina is, you know, suffering in a bit. And so, you know, while I think they have the, you know, the, the appetite for this sort of thing, I'm not sure that economically it's something that uh, makes sense to enter today. But I think there are several other countries where there's potential here. Peru, Peru has a robust uh, gastronomic uh, culture there. So I think there are some other places that make sense, yes. But I think some of the stuff we're doing could be done in the U.S. as well and be competitive. So now, as you think about the future of Mighty Greens, what's that look like for you, you know, based on everything we've talked about and, and where you're seeing success? Yeah, so we're, in fact, uh, Harry, right now we're raising money for expansion. We have now the, the, a lot of intent from a supermarket chain to purchase a, a, a minimum amount of mushrooms from us every month. So that was a breakthrough here. That's not a common type of uh, relationship that exists between suppliers and buyers in the, in Brazil. And we look to leverage this mushroom showroom approach into those sorts of relationships with other supermarket chains in major cities around Brazil. So we see setting up with mushrooms being our entry product and microgreens coming along with them. 
and expanding to over the next four years, expanding into five other cities around Brazil. That's our our focus right now. And adding a third product line as we get into the third year. Um, so we're not in... And that would be the berries? Yeah. So now the, we're, <laughs> we're going back and forth between a micro leaf and or strawberries. Strawberries are interesting, as I described early on, the price, that product that's you know, four eyes in one place and nearly 40 in another is strawberries, right? So in the northeast of the country, where those prices are dramatically different, much higher. Make sure you check out, if you haven't already listened to that interview with Hiroki, it's fast, just had a newfound appreciation for strawberries and uh, the care and, and the difference in varieties. It's almost like the way champagne is in, in France, it's, it's how they they grow strawberries by region. It's very, very interesting. Yeah, I saw, uh, I watched, I did. I haven't yet, and I, and I will right after this, listen to your interview with him, because I've, I've watched some of the YouTube videos of them. But I said once, you know, he was showing somebody around and they were doing a BRICS test on the strawberries and the number came up lower than he wanted it to be and he looked a little agitated and then he tested it again. But they have a, they pay attention to the, very detailed attention to the the size and the flavor, right, and yeah. the appearance of the product. Yeah. And so what happens here is the strawberries are growing in the cooler climates, right, in the states of, uh, in Rio Grande do Sul and Minas, Minas Gerais. And so you can, you know, and then they're trucked uh, to thousand or thousands of kilometers away. And I'll tell you another thing we learned, right? Before people start putting temperature sensors inside of these trucks, truckers would leave the farming area, right? The harvest area or the deposit, the warehouse at the, in the area that the product was produced in with the refrigerated truck to save on fuel. They'd turn off the refrigeration unit about an hour outside they drive for however many more hours, and then they turn the refrigeration on it, unit on again in the last hour before they get to the delivery point. I used to wonder why head of lettuce that I bought in, in Rio went bad so quickly compared to when I lived in, in the Washington, D.C. area. Right? My lettuce, and, and if you better eat it while you're walking home. <laughs> right? <laughs> Right? Yeah, yeah. And then the stuff we did in the, the first year, we, we went to out into the areas where they were growing lettuce and we like, like stalkers outside the lettuce farm. And we would take pictures of them loading lettuce in the bags that was sold in the supermarket into wooden boxes on the back of a pickup truck, drive down a dirt road dirt, uh, with dust flying over, going, going to a distribution center. Then they'd put that lettuce on an open truck. The exhaust from this diesel truck came out right from the cab, so it would blow over the lettuce while they drove down the mountainside. You know, this is outside of Rio. To give it that smoky flavor. Yes, defumado, as they say, to the made food distribution center. And it was already in the bag, because I know this was from a high-end store, that I would frequently buy my fresh produce, known for fresh fruits and vegetables. It was already in the bag, so they weren't taking it out of the bag and putting it back in again. It was going into that store, right? So our plan, right, is to grow in these key markets where there's a sizable urban population and lead with mushrooms and microgreens. Another interesting side note, right, we can pump the CO2 the mushrooms produce into the microgreens chamber, and it serves as fertilizer for the microgreens. Oh, interesting. And move the fresh air with the excess oxygen from the microgreen sector into the mushroom business. So they sort of feed each other. But to do that, and then, and then layer on, I said, if in certain areas of the country, we'll do microleaf. Uh, in other areas, we'll do the, the strawberry business. Well, yeah, <laughs> it's really interesting to hear what, what's been happening in other parts of the world with regards to vertical farming. And I'm glad you reached out and um, chock full of interesting stories. So I appreciate you taking the time to join me. And uh, time flew by here, Thomas. But uh, for people who want to learn more about Mighty Greens or Fazenda Urbana, what's the best place? Uh, where's the best place for them to go? Yeah, I think the, the Instagram, Mighty Greens do Brazil is one place to go. And then our company website is www.fazenda-urbana.com. And we'll have all of those links in the show notes as well. But uh, are you going to try to make it out to any of the upcoming conferences soon as well? You know, it's a, I don't know. I don't know, Harry. I would like to, but I'm not sure I'm going to. 
Yeah, maybe not. I think people are still 50-50 this year. They'll probably wait until next year and then ramp those back up again. Yeah, we're, I've just got a, we've got a lot going on right now on the expansion front. And so I think it's mo- mostly a time issue. I would, I, you know, sadly to say, I think I'll still be here. Okay. Well, well, thanks for the conversation. I really enjoyed it and learning a lot about what's happening again with Fazenda. So I appreciate you sharing your story. Thank you, Harry. It's a pleasure. Thanks again to Thomas for coming on the show and sharing his story. Grateful that he reached out via LinkedIn and we were able to learn more and make the interview happen. I never know where these conversations are going to go. And it took a couple of turns for the better that I really appreciated. As always, all the resources mentioned are in our show notes at verticalfarmingpodcast.com. Thanks to our title sponsor, Cultivated. If you're looking for a vertical farm and don't know where to start or which technology would suit your needs, reach out to them today. Best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Learn more at cultivated.com, and that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com. Just leave out that last E. Learn more and take advantage of early bird registration for Indoor AgCon at Indoor.ag and save an additional $100 off registration with our promo code VFP0D2021. Podcast production and marketing provided by Fullcast. Sign up for a free podcast brainstorm at fullcast.co, VFP15, to learn how a podcast can be helpful for your business. And as a reminder, Leave us that rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP, and we'll be sure to read those out on future episodes. Tune in next week for another conversation with a fascinating leader from the world of vertical farming. Until we meet again, here's to your health. Thanks for listening. To read the full show notes for this episode, which includes any links mentioned in the episode, as well as a full show transcription, visit verticalfarmingpodcast.com. There, you can sign up for our email list to be notified when new episodes are published.